One of the constant challenges that each one of us faces in this life, um, and we do this often, is that we have to learn how to discern the difference between a knockoff and the real thing. That is something that is an imitation of something and something that is the authentic, real McCoy, if you would. How many of you remember the first time you ever had a knockoff Twizzler? And you ate it and you thought you were going to get a Twizzler, but really it was a mildly sweetened piece of rubber. <laughs> because that's all a knockoff Twizzler really is. Or the first time you ever had uh, an off-brand ketchup, you know, and they even had to spell it differently, you know, catsup or something. And you, you go, you know, it looks right, it feels right, but it don't taste right, you know. And, 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 and you know, that kind of happens throughout life is that we, um, we, we have to discern the difference between something that is real and something that is not real. And one of the things that we learn is that there's so much more in this world that is not real than that actually is real. And sometimes we can become so accustomed to something that is not real or that is a knockoff that when we see the real thing, we don't even recognize it. And we mistake what is actually real for something that um, we think is fake when it is not. I remember the first time uh, George's grandfather uh, had real coffee. He His whole life just drank instant coffee. And so that was what he was accustomed to. And he um, came either to our house or he was at her parents' house. And we had brought some coffee that we really liked, you know, the good stuff. And um, we made it for him, and as he drank it, he took a sip, and his face looked like he had just eaten a lemon. And he looked at us, and I can't repeat the words that he said, but he alluded to what he was drinking as being filth and waste, and uh, he had no use for it at all. He had become so accustomed to the knockoff that he couldn't recognize the real thing. I believe that the same thing can happen in the spiritual realm, and it can happen absolutely in the church is that there can be Christians or there can be spiritual things, but they're not the genuine, they're not the real thing. They're an imitation of something that's supposed to be or something that maybe once was uh, or something that should be. And so it's not authentic, it's fake. And sometimes we can see so much of that in our lives that we fail to recognize the real thing even when it comes. And that was kind of what had taken place in Corinth. Though the Apostle Paul, who founded the church, certainly was the real thing, yet after his departure and leaving, the Corinthians had been exposed to a whole bunch of other things. They had heard some things that were real and some things that were not. They had been introduced to personalities and powers and different things that had different effects upon them. And they began, in a sense, to question whether or not the Apostle Paul was the real thing. They questioned his authority. They said he doesn't speak like Apollos. He doesn't carry himself like a Peter. And there's something about him. And so they wondered if the man who had started their church was in fact actually real. And so Paul, on the other hand, he, where he is at in the city of Ephesus, he receives a message that the Corinthian church had responded well to the letter that he had written. And for him, Paul, it was a sign that the church in Corinth was the real deal. That if they would respond with repentance to the letter that he had written to them, that that was for him proof that they were authentic and that they were real. And so he now writes this second epistle and the theme of at least the first half of it is, in, is on this topic of what is the real deal? What is it to be authentic in our Christian walk, are we really Christians or are we simply a knock-off imitation of something that we think or something we have seen? He begins his line of thought in chapter 2 and then into chapter 3 by giving the proof of his own authenticity. He points to those things in his life that there's no way that any man can counterfeit or knock off and he reminds them of what they had seen in him that they might know that he was in fact real, that the Spirit of God was at work within his life and that he was a real Christian. Then he goes on from there, and it's what we looked at last week, 
to talk to them about the source of that authenticity or of the power that he possessed as an apostle. And in a nutshell, what he says to them is that the reason why I have the power I have and that I am who I am is because I have given myself completely to following God according to the new covenant. I'm not following him according to the legal standards of the Old Testament, which was completely dependent upon man and upon self. But I'm walking with him according to what Christ provided through the cross and what the Father provided by sending the Spirit in response to the death of his Son. I'm a New Testament Christian. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, forgiven because of the blood of Christ. And the result of that is that I am an authentic and real Christian, and there's fruit in my life to prove it. Well, as we move into chapter 4, what Paul gets into now is what is the outcome or what is the fruit or the result of being an authentic New Testament spirit-filled Christian? What do we have as the fruit of being authentic believers? That's the question that Paul answers as we get into chapter 4. And so we begin, Paul begins with the word in verse 1, therefore... And he says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, that is the ministry of being new covenant, New Testament Christians, not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit of life. As we have received mercy, which is the complete terms of this new covenant relationship that we have with God, that we've received mercy from him. He says the result of it is one thing. It's singular and it's given to us right here. He says, we faint not or we do not grow weary. The result of being in this relationship with God through the the blood of his son and by his spirit empowering our lives is that we don't lose heart, we don't grow weary, we do not faint in our relationship or in in the thing that God has called us into or what he's called us to do. And, And that's as far as it goes. There is absolutely nothing else that he says. The rest of the chapter Really, what it gives to us are the reasons why we don't grow weary. Now, how many of you in in here have ever grown weary in your life, especially as a Christian? How many have felt like giving up? How many have ever come to a point where you feel like, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be? I came forward thinking peace, joy, an easy primrose path. What I found is that it's difficulty and persecution and stress and, man, it's hard. Every one of us has. Paul did. We read in chapter one how he said himself that he was distressed above measure, pressed beyond measure. He said above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But even though he had come to that place where he was wanting to die rather than to live, he got through it and moved on. And he didn't quit the ministry or stop walking with God or lose heart in the thing. But rather, he persisted, he continued, he was renewed, his strength grew, and he went onward. And Paul says that that's always going to be the fruit of someone who truly is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we're not going to faint. We're going to go through the difficult things. We're going to stand up on the other side of it with two feet, and we're going to continue walking on towards him. How is it that against impossible odds, And in extremely difficult circumstances, we can continue to go on with the Lord and not give up and find something else to believe in or follow after. The Apostle Paul gives to us here four things, and I'll preface that by saying that the fourth one is like a bomb of like 10 more. But there's four things that Paul brings out in this passage that enabled him to keep going and not give up. What are they? Well, the first one that's given to us in verse 2 is that the reason he didn't give up, number one, is because of the freedom that he had as an authentic New Testament believer. Notice what he says. He says, but because we've received this ministry and we've received mercy and we don't faint, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He he says, first of all, in this 
uh, uh, arena of this new covenant ministry that affords us the strength to continue. He says that the freedom we have in him has enabled us to be able to renounce the hidden things. Now, if you were here last week or if you're familiar with the previous chapter, chapter 3, he drew on the illustration of the veil that was over the face of Moses. And he contrasted the veil that Moses wore as a servant of the Old Testament with the removal of that veil that accompanies the life of anyone who lives in the New Testament. And that's the picture that he's drawing on here when he says that we've renounced the hidden things. That is that we live a life that is completely unveiled. And then he describes the things that are normally hidden behind veils and such. He says we've renounced the hidden things of, first of all, dishonesty. Now, dishonesty as Christians, as it's given here in the context, what it means is anything short of absolute truth. That's what dishonesty is. Sometimes you can say something that isn't an outright lie, but nevertheless, it's dishonest, isn't it? Sometimes you can give the right information, but you can give it in a way where it's misleading, where it's causing someone to come to the wrong conclusion, even though you didn't technically lie. That's dishonest, according to the Bible. When they said of Jesus that this deceiver said that he will destroy this temple and build it again in three days, they gave the right information. Jesus actually did say that. But they took him out of context. He wasn't speaking about the temple. He was talking about his body. And it says there in the commentary in the gospel, it says that they bore false witness. They were lying. Right information, but it was the wrong conclusion that they were leading the audience to. And Paul is saying here is that as New Testament believers in Christ, part of the reason why we have enough strength to continue is that we've renounced all dishonesty within our lives. We have been placed in a way with God where we can afford to be absolutely honest in every area of our life all the time. We don't have to hide what we are or what we aren't. We don't have to hide what we believe or paint it in a particular light in a way where, in, where it's more acceptable for people to, to believe or listen to or follow. We can afford as Christians to be completely and totally honest. We don't have to mislead people at all as it concerns our lives or our witness. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Georgia had a roommate, my wife, in college who was brought up in the faith and she made a decision as a young Christian girl that she was never going to tell a lie ever in her whole life no matter what it would cost her. And she lived by that to the best of her ability as far as we know. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, you know, what? I'm going to try that and practice that within my life. And I can't say for certain that I've always been absolutely honest in every junction of my life and never said anything that's untrue, but I can tell you that I have done it in a lot of times where it's cost me to do it. And though sometimes it's embarrassing or humiliating or sometimes you lose something because of it or a relationship is severed or hurt, I can say that there's an incredible peace that comes with that kind of life. To know that I can afford to live that way and that God has my back because I'm honoring him with truth. Paul says we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Also, he goes on to say, not walking in craftiness. The word crafty right there, it means artfulness. It means using techniques. It means spiritual sleight of hand. It means to be artful with the word of God or with spiritual things. There's an instance in the Gospels, I think it's in Luke chapter 20, or maybe it's, well, it'll come up on the screen. I didn't put, write it down the, the reference in my uh, uh, page here. But it says that they came to Jesus and they asked him a question about whether it was right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And they were seeking to trap him. They thought they had him because if he says, yes, it is right, then he would lose the favor of the Jews that were putting their trust in him. If he said no, he'd be violating the law of Rome and they would have grounds to crucify him under Roman law. And so they thought they trapped him. And it says of Jesus, it says that when he perceived their craftiness, that is, they were being artful about a seemingly honest question for the sake of trapping him in his words. And Paul says we don't do that in the way that we give away truth to people or the way that we live our lives. We aren't crafty. When Paul prepared sermons or speeches or talks 
or when Paul taught the Bible or when he witnessed to people one-on-one evangelizing with them. He didn't say things or frame things in such a way wherein he would trap them into making a profession that they didn't really mean. He didn't stir up emotional responses in people that would get them to do things that wasn't genuine and sincere from the heart. He wasn't crafty or artful, but he was absolutely plain in the way that he presented truth and gave the word of God away to people. He trusted in the power of the message and not in the way that he delivered it. Paul says we can afford to do that, and you can testify of your own mouth that that's the way I dealt with you. We didn't walk in craftiness, nor, thirdly, handling the word of God deceitfully. Did you know that it's possible to take scripture, or even a string of scriptures, and put them together in such a way that you can lead someone down a wrong path? And, and get them to believe that what they're believing is absolutely true. And the reason is because you used the Bible to do it. If you take scripture out of context, you can cause people to believe things that are absolutely false about God. There's absolutely no truth in it whatsoever. And people do it all the time. That's the reason why we teach line upon line, verse by verse. Not because we have the formula or the key or anything else or, or that we're better but because we want to know the context in which each verse and each word is spoken. And what that does is it gives us a framework to be able to interpret truth accurately and and have peace in our hearts that what we're believing is in fact what the Bible is teaching. And there's a peace and a comfort in that, knowing that we're not being deceived. And Paul says we didn't take scriptures, tie them with other scriptures, and make them say something that they're not. Did you know that the Bible says that there is no God? The Bible actually says there is no God. Now, if you take the whole verse wherein those words are found, it says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. But if I take half a verse, I can prove to you with the Bible that there is no God. I've lied to you, but I've used the Bible to do it. And people do it all the time to manipulate people, to get them to do or to believe what they want for their own purposes, and it's dangerous. Pastors, church leaders do this all the time. They do it, as Paul would say in Acts chapter 20, in order to draw men after themselves. So if I use the word of God in a deceitful way, I can come across to you like I have secret knowledge that you don't have that I have a line in with God and that he speaks to me in a way that he won't speak to you or that you can't understand. And therefore, you need me to teach you. And without me, you can't know God the way that you should. That's using the word of God deceitfully. It's wrong. It's sin. It will be judged. Sometimes preachers, pastors, teachers, they'll use fear tactics. They'll say things that are outrageous and they'll strike fear in the heart of a a listener. and, And it draws them to that teacher, that speaker in such a way wherein they feel like, well, man, if he knows what's going on, then he also will know how to do it. And it causes a perceived dependence upon an individual. And there's a reason for it. Paul says we don't do that. And, 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 the, and the, the, the fact that we don't do it causes us to endure. He says we don't handle the word of God deceitfully. On the contrary, Paul says, as he moves on, he says, but by manifestation of the truth, Now, to manifest something simply means to unveil it, right? It's something that was previously unseen that now can be clearly observed, discerned, and understood. And he says, we manifest the truth. Now, what is the truth? According to the Bible, the truth is two things. The truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So that's the truth. Jesus is the truth. And also, secondarily, the Bible. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus praying said, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so Paul says what we do do is that we manifest truth. We expose Jesus through our lives and through our doctrine, our teaching to those that we come into contact with. And we give them the word of God plainly in a way that they can see it. He says, but by manifestation of the truth and what we do in that is that we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That is what we're doing is we're simply giving people something to observe in themselves and then discern 
and evaluate with their own mind and understanding and then come to a conclusion on their own without any persuasion on our part at all. All we've done is lifted the veil, allowed them to hear and see for themselves what's underneath, evaluate it, and then come to their own conclusion. Paul says, that's the method and the mode of my ministry. What that is, what that translates out to be, is absolute freedom in the mind of Paul that he's not the doer of the work. God is. It's not our responsibility as Christians to convert a single soul. We cannot convert a single soul in as much as us dying on a cross wouldn't pay for the sins of someone else. Only God can reveal himself to a human heart. Our part in the thing is simply manifesting the truth, the truth of Jesus in our own lives and experience, and also the things that he's taught us that we understand through his word. And as we just expose that, it gives the Holy Spirit place to work in people's hearts and bring them to their own conclusion concerning Jesus. And if a person gets saved, we may have given a good testimony, but it's God that brought the conversion. And there's great freedom in that. It's staying freedom. When we place upon ourselves the burden of being successful in bringing in fruit for God, that's a burden that no one can bear. That's old covenant weight, and it will cause you to faint. You'll give up and you'll quit. Fruit is not produced or manufactured. It is born by a tree that is simply rooted in fertile soil. And that's the case for every Christian. And if you want to endure as a New Testament authentic Christian, then it, it, it's important that we remain free, that there's freedom in our hearts, that we're not seeking to work the angle spiritually and produce outcomes on our own. Paul says, just manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We live a fishbowl-like life for the sake of giving opportunity for every man to perceive and conclude without any disillusionment. And that gives us the freedom to be what we are. And that's what God asks of us. We're free to be what we are and where we are. Well, the second reason that he gives as we move on into verse three, the second reason why we don't faint is because if we are truly believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have, each one of us, an unlimited source of strength. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, but if our gospel be hid or hidden or veiled, it is hidden or veiled to them that are lost. The question that would naturally arise is that, okay, Paul, if you simply manifest the truth and that's the secret of your great power and effectiveness, then why are there still lost people? If that's all it takes, then why isn't everyone just coming to the light and seeing the light? Why are there still those that are lost? And the answer that Paul gives, he says, if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those that are lost. And here's why in verse four, he says, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Notice what he says about those that are lost and the reason why they're not coming into the freedom of Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, that there's an agent, and that agent is none other than whom Paul calls the God of this age. Notice that that's a lowercase g. He's not talking about Almighty God, the Lord Jesus, Jehovah. He's talking about none other than Satan himself. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Paul called him in Ephesians chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air. And here he refers to him as the God of this world, the lowercase g, God of this world. He is the one who is in control of the spiritual forces that are at work in the world, the fallen world in which we live. When God made the world and he placed Adam in it, he delivered to Adam sovereignty over the planet. He gave to him, as it were, the title deed or ownership or right of ownership to this world. It was made for man. But when man sinned, the Bible says that whoever you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are, whom you obey. And Satan, or Adam rather, yielded himself to Satan as a servant to sin. And at that moment, Satan stole 
the title of the world or the right of ownership of this world from Adam and brought it under himself. It's what Jesus came to redeem when we talk about how he redeemed the world. And Jesus did redeem the world. But until he returns and lays claim to what he purchased with his blood, Satan is still today the prince of the power of the air. He's still the lowercase God of this world, the one who is residing over the affairs of men. And part of his diabolical role as the God of this world is that he blinds the minds of those that don't believe. Now, if you look back with your eyes to the last chapter for just a minute, chapter 3, verse 14, when Paul was talking about the veil, notice the language that Paul uses there concerning the veil that's over the minds of the Jews. He says, but their minds, speaking of the Jews that don't know Jesus, their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away with Christ or done away in Christ. What Paul is saying there is that over the Jews, there is a veil of religion that's been placed over them. They cannot see Christ because the veil of religion is too dark and they can't see through it. But for the lost world, the lost Gentile that doesn't know Jesus, there's a veil over their minds as well, but it's a different veil. It's not a veil of religion, but rather it's a veil of deception. And that is that Satan has lied to them and he's caused them to believe that there is no God and that there is no light and that there is no life outside of the veil that is over their minds. Now imagine for just one moment with me that you lived in a tent that was 18 inches thick made out of black opaque velvet. That's where you live. And it's where you've lived your whole life. And everything that you've ever known, the context of your entire existence resides within the confines of that opaque covering that you live in, that blackened veil. And there's absolutely no outside light that comes into it whatsoever. And that's where you live. And you become, in that environment, convinced that there's nothing else. There's nothing outside of it. There never was, there never will be. This is just reality inside of this thing. You can't see light. As far as you're concerned, there is nothing else. And the Bible tells us that it is Satan's goal, as the prince of this world, to keep men and women living within that veil that they're born into. That there is darkness, that there's nothing outside of this world, and he exists for the purpose of bringing them into that place that their minds would be blinded, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how does he do it? How does Satan blind the mind of someone who doesn't believe the truth? Well, the first thing he does is that he forges the lie that there is nothing outside of it. He gets people to believe that there is no such thing as life outside the veil. It is just dark. That's all there is. This is what it is. And so he creates that lie. Then secondarily, he creates a prejudiced mind against any influence or voice that would say otherwise. So if someone comes into your opaque tent and they tell you there, hey, there's light outside, then Satan loves to get people into a mind frame where they won't believe it or where they think, oh, you believe that? You actually believe that there's something outside of the confines of, of this velvet paradise that we live in in here? You're, you are a fundamentalist, born-againer, Bible-thumping pusher, aren't you? And you're just so happy with your Jesus talk and your light and your living. You're a butterfly living in the light. And Satan loves to create that prejudice in the minds of those that don't believe, lest they should open themselves to look outside and see if there actually is something there. The third thing that Satan then does in his desire to blind the mind of those that don't believe is that he clutters the mind with, first of all, education, and then entertainment and then media, and then just a whole bunch of information and things that will crowd the mind. And the mind is always the place where the battle is fought. It's the high place of man. Whoever controls the mind controls the man. And he'll so fill the mind with the influence of other things and things that are contrary to the light that he can move man to be so distracted that he never asks himself even the question or he forgets to consider or ponder whether there is anything outside the veil because they're so preoccupied by all the things that are within. 
He then clutters the mind with vain pursuits, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of hobbies and the pursuits of pleasures, the pursuits of things that just steal time like social media or video games or whatever it is that Satan uses, anything that he can hook a person with depending on their personality or what their inclinations are. Or he'll even go as far as distracting a person with thoughts of religion or things of religion, but religion that exists within the veil that doesn't cause the person to look outside. Satan has no problem with the counterfeit religion that keeps a person in darkness. If he can blind their mind with religion, all the better for him because they think they're in the light when in fact they are in darkness. And Satan is the master of creating circumstances that draw men to false conclusions and thus leave them in the dark. And that's what he does. Now, if a person were to come out of that veil and they were to see the light, then they would know that light is actually truth. Paul says, he's blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest, meaning that if they should see outside the veil, then they would automatically see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, and that it should shine unto them. Once a person opens up their mind enough to look outside the veil of what's inside, and that's challenging because they know that if they do look outside and they let the light in, that the light might upset or offset the things that they've grown accustomed to underneath the veil. It's another thing that Satan does when he has a person blinded and living in that darkness is that he gives them false experiences of pleasure, things that can temporarily bring satisfaction or distraction. And he tells them, hey, if there actually is light outside there, you know that the light is going to expose these things for what they are and you're no longer going to be able to enjoy them or live in them. And he can get a person to not care about light because they care too much about the thing they're holding onto underneath the veil. But when a person opens their mind and the light comes in, they immediately see that it's truth, that there is light there. The light is already shining. I remember this experience for myself. I had a very thick veil that I was living inside before I came to Christ, just like you did, or you might if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ. I had a very thick, dark veil that I was living under, and I believed every lie of Satan. He had won me over completely. I believed the lie that there was no light. I was prejudiced against the, the, the truth that there might be light or the idea that there would be light. I loved my life in the darkness and didn't want to come outside and, 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 and bear the potential of losing the sinful things that I enjoyed under that darkness. All of that was true in my life. But I came to a point by the providence of God where he wore down my resistance to just consider and open my mind to the fact that maybe there is light and maybe that it is Jesus that is that light. And I opened the window of that veil and I looked out and immediately light flooded in. The light was already there. It didn't, God didn't have to shine it anew. It was already there. All it took was for me to, in my will, lift the veil and look and see, is there actually light? And there was light and it flooded into my life as soon as I did that. Now, all of us that have done that, we see the light and it comes in and we realize that there's truth. And then what happens is that we see so clearly because of that light that we get frustrated that other people can't see it. And so we try to describe what's going on in the light in our lives now to people that are close to us that are still in darkness. And we come with zeal and excitement because there's life. And we go, man, there's a whole world of life. You've got to see it. And they look at us and they go, oh no, you drank the Kool-Aid. You you can't possibly, no, 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 can't you see it? It's so real. And we share scripture with them. But we've taken scripture into their darkness. They can't see it. We're going, can't you see it? Can't you see it? And the light's on us so we can see it, but they can't see it. They're in darkness. And so they can't. And we get frustrated in the whole thing because we're living in light and they can't see it because of the opaque veil that is upon them. That's why it's so powerful when a person comes forward in a service or makes a decision for Christ or prays the sinner's prayer, we think, what's the power in going forward or even maybe in raising their hand or, or speaking forth the words of that prayer? When a person does that, what they're doing is that they are stepping outside the veil. 
And just like it was for you and I, when we opened our minds to Christ in whatever way that we did, the light came in. When a person does that, we know that there's an effect that it's going to have upon their life. They're never going to be the same again because they've seen light, true light. So when a person lifts away that veil, and it's lifted away how? By believing. It's simply by believing enough to open your mind to Christ. I opened my mind enough before I came to Christ to open the Bible and read what it said, but I wouldn't come out the veil to do it. And the result of it was anger and frustration and scoffing. But when I opened the veil and said, God, I'm open to the fact that Jesus may have died for my sins, and I'm open to the fact of his salvation and his lordship in my life. As soon as that happened, the light shined upon the same word that I had read before. And now it made sense, and my life was changed. Things began to happen. So when we open the veil, light comes in, and it has an effect. It's like a baby that goes from the womb and out into the world. They were in darkness. They were alive, but they were in darkness. And then they came into reality, and a whole set of senses that they didn't know they have suddenly were quickened and made alive. They can smell. They can see. They can hear. They can feel. All of those things were there while they were in the womb. There was the potential. But once they came into the light, now those things are experienced. And such is the experience for every person who's born again, who comes out of the veil and comes into the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. That's why we get so excited, because we really can see something that no one else can see. We really can feel something that no one else can feel. We really can hear in a way that people otherwise cannot hear. And there's a path laid out for us that we can walk in that no one else can walk in as they wander through this world. There's life in the gospel. And so Paul says here, he says, lest they should see the light and come to the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. We can know God. And then that that should shine unto them. They would have that light. Now, for, he says in verse 5, or this is why, for is a reason word, He says, for, or this is why, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, what we are, is your servants for Jesus' sake. He said, we're not seeking to draw men to ourselves. The purpose of our ministry is not that people would speak well of us or hold us up on a pedestal and say, hey, have you heard the teachings of, and then put our name after it in some way. He says, that's not our message at all. Our our message and our ministry is Christ. That's whom we're seeking to bring people to. He is the light. He is the Savior. He's the one that died, rose, and can fill all things. And he's the one that we seek to draw men to. He says, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, there's freedom in that, as I said earlier, but there's also a peril. You know why? Because people love their pulpit personalities. And if someone sits or stands and teaches the word of God and they don't do it with personality or with a sense of humor or with uh, some way of delivering it that's unique or that has a hook in it, then some people won't give them the time of day. And there's a danger in it. But Paul says it's the most effective way. Paul says that the word of God stands or falls on its own. It doesn't need the personality of a preacher or someone to hold its hand and make it effective in what it does. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul would say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In other words, Paul said, I don't depend upon my ability to bring it forth in a certain way. I depend on the power of the message itself. And the word of God stands on its own. That's why we are so free to just preach Jesus, give Jesus, share what he's done in your life, Share the little that you know about what it's like to come out of darkness and into his light. And God, through his power, can do the rest. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus the Lord. And what we are is simply your servants for Jesus' sake. And here's how it works. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, an allusion to Genesis 1-1, when God said, light be, and light was. For the same God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
is that when we allow the veil to be lifted away from our hearts and we allow the light of God and the person of God to be revealed through the character and nature of Christ as revealed in his ministry and his presence with us, that in those things we have the glory of God shining in our hearts constantly. And here's what that does in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure, the treasure of God's light, in earthen vessels. You could write nearby that. You could write jars of clay, equating our human frailty with simple common pottery, jars of clay. He says, we have this treasure, the light, in jars of clay, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The word excellency is translated beyond all measure. And so you could read it this way, is that we have the power of God given to us beyond all measure, and the source of that power is from God and not from us. And what Paul is saying to us here is that part of the reason that we don't faint as Christians, though sometimes we might feel like we want to, but the reason why we get up and we keep going is because we have an unlimited source of power in the light that we have received from him. Remember when Jesus wanted to thin out the crowds a little bit in John chapter 5? And he said to those that were gathered, the, the large crowds of people that were there, he said that my flesh is food and my blood is drink. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you at all. And it it says that many of the people that were following followed him no longer when he spoke those words because they didn't understand the context of what he was saying. And it sounded so sacrilegious to them that they couldn't endure what he was teaching and they left from him. And after saying that and watching multitudes leave their company, Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, are you guys going to leave too? Do you want to go? And Peter looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, where are we going to go? For you have the words of eternal life. Now, I don't know if that was a positive or negative inflection in Peter's words. I don't know if he was saying, Lord, we would, but where are we going to go? We've given everything to you. Or whether he was honestly saying, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Maybe it was a little bit of both. But the truth for the Christian is this, is that once you've come into the light, there's no more room for darkness. And to leave God because it's too hard to follow him means to retreat into the old life of darkness, which is exceedingly harder. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And so even though we come against or come into the face of difficulty as believers, we can't be cast down at the, at, in the long run because the excellency or the abundance of his power is still with us. His light is still shining within our hearts. And Paul says the excellency of that power is in these frail earthen vessels. Now, God in his wisdom designed it that way, that we would be frail, common, breakable objects, but that tucked inside would be a treasure so great, so unworthy of the vessel that's holding it. That's our lives. And any time that we seek to make ourselves more than just that, a clay jar, common, cracked pot, then we not only rob ourselves of what, you know, the honesty of what we really are, but we diminish the glory of what's really inside. The contrast is where the power is. When you take the treasure of God and put it in something as common as a man, it accentuates and highlights the glory of the one who's inside. That's why Peter would write later on and he would say that angels peer into the things of salvation and they marvel. It doesn't make sense to them. Why would the God of glory make his home in the heart of a human vessel? It doesn't make sense. What doesn't glorify man, what it does is it glorifies God. It magnifies his light. And for you and I to be effective, we're fools if we make ourselves more than what we are because all that does is diminish the light. If we make ourselves what we really are, cracked pots, then the light comes through in such an amazing and incredible way and people see the light that's in us and they're drawn to the light and not to us. And so the second reason we don't faint, according to Paul, is because we've been given a source of strength that is beyond measure. The third reason why we don't faint, he gives it to us in verse 8, is because we are continually preserved by him. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, for we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. 
We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now he builds on this illustration of a cracked pot or a clay jar here. And he uses an illustration of how a potter would work with clay. He says, first of all, we're troubled on every side. The idea or the word troubled, it means to be compressed or restricted or afflicted. And if you can just picture a potter, you'll see it for yourself in just a week and a half. That in order for the potter to make the clay pot what he wants to, he has to apply equal pressure from every side. He uses his arms, his hands, his shoulders, even his face and his head, and he applies pressure in such a way that he can shape that clay and make it what it wants to be. And sometimes when our potter, our father, is shaping us to be these jars of clay, the pressure that he allows and places upon our lives can be intense, can't it? We're pressed on every side. We feel it in the form of the stresses of life, the strain of relationships, the difficulty of fighting temptations and all the things that we go through in this world. It's pressure. We're troubled, but yet, even though we're troubled, we're not, he says, distressed. The word distressed means closed in or imprisoned with no no escape. Though God allows pressure and pain in our lives, and he does, He never does it for our harm. He always does it for our good and for our health. Somebody said one time, he will hurt us, but he will never harm us. And there's truth in that. The things that we go through in the Lord can be painful, but they always turn out for our good. They are trumped for glory and never for our destruction. Second of all, we're perplexed. The word perplexed just means confused. We're confused. And how many times in this life are we confused? How many of you have prayed the prayer? God, what are you doing? I know I have (laughs) on countless occasions. He leads us into circumstances and we say, God, what are you doing? And it's so confusing. If we try to even vocalize the circumstances and communicate the dynamics of them to someone, it's just confusion. We can't even do it. And God brings us into things of complexity, situations that are perplexing, confusing. But yet, Paul says, even though we're perplexed at times, we're not in despair. The word despair means hopeless. Meaning that we, at the end of the day, when we stop trying to figure out what in the world God is doing, if we take three steps back and look at God and bring him into the context of it all, hope comes back in. We're not in despair. We're not hopeless. The situation isn't going to end right where we are. He's going to lead us through it. He says in verse nine, thirdly, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Persecution means the forces that are brought upon us by people. We're being chased down as it were. We feel like we're running away. But in the midst of that, we're not forsaken. We're never left by God or abandoned in the middle of it. He leads us through it. He brings us through. And then fourthly, he says at the end of verse nine, He says that we're cast down, but we're not destroyed. To be cast down means to be humbled. We can be humbled, can't we, in this life? But we're not destroyed. That means abolished or ruined. It doesn't happen that way. We go through these things, but we're continually preserved in them. You say, why? 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 How many of you have prayed that prayer? Again, I know that I have. He gives the answer in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. He says, always bearing about in the body, that is our body, our human clay flesh, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now think about it for just a moment. Jesus suffered and was crucified on a cross, and that suffering was followed by glory and resurrection, wasn't it? And what Paul is saying is that if we're in Christ, then as we suffer in the same ways that he suffered, we're going to experience the resurrection power coming out of our life that he also experienced after his suffering. That we always bear about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest or or revealed in our body. For we which live in this world are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death works in us, but life in you. In other words, Paul says, as we suffer 
the things that we suffer as we walk this walk of faith, the result of that suffering is going to be glory and power that comes out of our life that you are going to be the beneficiaries of. So if death works in us, it will result in life working out in you because the glory of God will be manifested through the sufferings that we are enduring. That's what Paul is saying to them here. We are continually sustained by God. He brings us through things so that he can use those things to reach others in our lives. Death works in us, life works in those that observe. And so we don't faint, thirdly, because we are continually preserved by him. Now, if you want a heading for the fourth reason, the reason number four that Paul gives in verse eight uh, concerning this, why we don't faint, is because we're living for eternity, not for earth. That's why we don't faint. But he's going to bomb us with a whole bunch of sub-reasons here that keep us from fainting as we look at these verses. Look at verse 13. He says, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore I have spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Now there's four things I want you to circle in those three verses. First of all, in verse 13, circle the word believe. In verse 14, circle the word knowing or whatever you know your translation might, however it might phrase it. In verse 15, two things you're gonna circle. First of all, for your sakes or for you. And then lastly, at the end of the verse, to the glory of God. Each of those things right there that you just circled and that Paul said are reasons why he doesn't faint. First of all, the first one that he gives in verse 13 is he says, because we believe. Because we have faith. That's the reason why we speak and Resultantly, when we speak, it causes us to suffer. That was Paul's entire story, wasn't it? On a side note, can I point this out to you? That Paul actually gives to us a truth in this verse. It's somewhat convicting and searching. He says that one of the evidences that we actually do have faith is that we will speak. Do you see that there? He says, even as it's written in the Old Testament, it's Psalm 116, verse 10. He says, we believe, therefore we speak. If we truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, part of the evidence of that is that we'll speak of him and speak for him, that there'll be a boldness that comes out of our life. It's searching, isn't it? As we consider, like, how vocal am I about my faith? How open am I? I know this convicts me. I tend to be reserved or introverted naturally. And, and also when it comes to the things of my faith. But Paul says that one of the evidences of our faith is that we'll speak. But he says, we believe, we absolutely believe. In verse 14, the word knowing, we don't just believe something, but we know something. We know that he which raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up also by Jesus and present us with you. We know that all of what we do in this world is gonna result for something in the world that's to come. And because we know that, we don't hope it, we know it. He says, it causes us to not faint. In verse 15, he says, all things are for your sakes, we do this for you, and we know that it's going to redound to the glory of God. And so we know that if we don't faint, you're going to benefit from it, and God's going to receive glory. And so Paul concludes by saying in verse 16, for which cause we faint not. This is why we do not grow weary in this new covenant life that we have as Christians because we have an abundant freedom to be who we are and be what we are and just manifest truth and manifest what we are and let people come to their own conclusions and we don't get overladen with our own things. We're also free because we have an abundant source of strength through the light that he gives constantly. We also don't faint because we're continually preserved though we're cast down and persecuted and confused. God always brings us through onto the other side. And we also don't faint because we are living for an eternity that goes beyond the confines of our time and experiences 
in this present world. He says, we do not faint, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Is there any kind of an amen I can get on that? Every single one of us here knows what it means that our outward man is perishing. Is that we are falling apart. Our bodies are diminishing. Our minds are getting weaker, not stronger. Every part of our physical faculties is showing itself to be the clay that it is because that's all that we are. That's what's happening to the outward man. But spiritually, we're growing. Spiritually, the light is getting brighter. Spiritually, his presence is growing richer. His person is becoming sweeter to us as we grow closer to him. Heaven is becoming more of a reality to us as we read the word of God and understand the truth of God. His size increases. He goes from being a small God that we think we can understand to being so magnified and so big that we we feel like we can never wrap our understanding around even the edges of his ways as it is written. And, and, And the outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And thus, he says in verse 17, for our light affliction. I circled that in my Bible. Do you know what Paul called light affliction? He gave us a sampling of what he means by it back in chapter 1 when he said we wanted to die. He expands on that in chapters 11 and 12 when he talks about all of the things that he went through in his ministry for the Lord. Three times I was beaten with rods. Five times I was whipped with the flagellum 39 times. Chastised like Jesus was. A night and a day I spent lost, shipwrecked out at sea. I've been in danger by robbers, in dangers in my travels, in dangers by my own countrymen, persecuted in every place that I've gone. He lists all of those things that are there. And here he writes over the top of every one of those trials that he faced throughout his life and he calls it light affliction. He expressed the same sentiment in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, For I, I am convinced that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. How can Paul look at the things that he suffered and call them light afflictions? The answer is because he compared those things to the glory that he's going to experience in heaven. And when you take the shortness of this life, whether you have 70, 80, or 90 years, or maybe even less than that in some some respects, and you weigh all of what you experience in those years against the glory that you'll experience for eternity. Do you know how long eternity is? It's a long time. If a little bird were to sharpen its beak on a rock once a week, By the time that little bird wears down that entire rock, one day of eternity has passed. Eternity is a long, long time. And when our eyes are fixed on things that are eternal and not on things that are temporary, it causes us to see the trials of this life in their proper context and they immediately become very, very light in what they purchase for us. Notice how Paul phrases it here. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And the way that I maintain perspective, Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, that is the physical, the here and now, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And the way that we can get through this life and not faint and the way that we can successfully walk with God and come to the end and know that we were faithful to him all the days and that we stood on the side of every trial that we went through, part of the way that we do that is that we look at things through their eternal lens and we recognize that this world is just a breath. It's just a vapor. And even the hardest thing in it is so temporary compared to the eternity that we'll face. He picks up on this theme in chapter 5 as he begins now to talk about what awaits us in the life that is to come. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we 
look at this <clears throat> testimony that Paul lays out before us as he talks about the result of living a new covenant life. Father, we find ourselves asking you tonight that the results of these things would be just true in our lives as well. Father, we pray tonight that where tonight something that was spoken in the word contradicts something that testifies of us, we ask that you would forgive us and that any yoke that we're carrying that doesn't belong on our shoulders would be removed even at this time right now. Father, we, we pray that you would forgive us for complaining about the trials and the circumstances that, that we're in and for not weighing those things in the scales of eternity or the scales of your perfect will or the scales of the sufferings of Christ. We would ask you, Father, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit tonight, that you would renew us in our commission, sending us forth, Lord, to manifest the truth in the eyes and before the minds of those that are blinded around us. Please use us and help us, Father. We recognize that we can do nothing on our own, but that we need you in all things. So would you fill us now, O oh God? And if there's anyone here tonight, Lord, under the veil of darkness, I pray that they heard enough in this message to willingly open their mind, come out from underneath it, and see the light of the glorious gospel, and that they would come to know the true and the living God through the face of Jesus Christ. And so we ask these things together in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.